This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we took a trip to Baltimore to chat with some of its residents about the various ways they make their livings there. We're hoping to learn a little uh, about how Baltimore shapes their work and about how they're shaping Baltimore by working. For our second episode, we visited with Carita Collins, who runs the Neighborhood Fiber Company, a yarn-dyeing business that operates out of a 19th-century firehouse in Baltimore. They supply knitters with an astonishing array of hand-dyed yarns, all of them named after neighborhoods in Baltimore and other cities. Collins shared some of her backstory with us, telling us how she ended up founding the company in the first place, gave us a tour of the space, talking us through the dyeing process along the way, and, of course, she also discussed her business's relationship to Baltimore itself, sharing some of the ways that they've tried to respond to local events. As someone who loves fine wools, uh, loves a good sweater. Uh, I was delighted to learn some of the process that actually goes into shaping those fundamental materials. It's both more complicated and more compelling than I would have imagined. Then in a Slate Plus Extra, Collins gets into some of her own knitting projects and explains what makes someone knit worthy. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Karita Collins, and I am the owner slash president of the Neighborhood Fiber Company. So we are in the space of the Neighborhood Fiber Company today. Can you tell us a little bit about where we are and what you do here? Well, we are in a historic firehouse. It's very cool that was built in 1865, I think, and has been converted into a hand-dyed yarn studio. You probably want to ignore that. That's going to be the UPS or mail. Just let this happen. (laughs) Okay, so uh, we are in an old firehouse that has been converted into a hand-dyed yarn studio. And what do you do in this hand-dyed yarn studio? Well, we dye yarn, um, mostly for knitting and crochet, but, you know, hand knitters, not for mass production, knitting machine kind of stuff. It's small batch, kind of, uh, it has been referred to as artisan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that a dirty word? No, it just sounds a lot more, to me, it sounds a lot more pretentious and a lot less physically intensive like Mm -hmm. what we do is physical labor at some point I shifted from being an individual artist to being 
uh, manufacturer of a product. So, so let's take a step back. How did you get into yarn dyeing in the first place? My best friend from high school taught me how to knit after we both graduated from college. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she came over to my house and we sat on the couch and it was sort of the total normal, let me show you how to do this cool thing I learned. And for me, it just felt like coming home. Like, how have my hands not been doing this my entire life? This is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I got kind of obsessed Mm -hmm. and I started knitting all the time. I had was about to start grad school, so I was knitting through all of my grad school classes. So how did you get from that time where you were just knitting to a time where you were dyeing yarn? Yeah, I uh, got a job after grad school with a yarn store, and I was the manager of a yarn store in D.C. My mom was super proud and totally excited about me using all of my degrees for that. (laughs) So, and also it was awesome for paying my student loans. I'm sure. Uh, But while I was there, I had the decision that I wanted to open a yarn business. I wasn't sure what kind of yarn business, but I knew I couldn't afford to open a yarn store in DC. Mm. But my mom was like, I'll lend you a thousand bucks if you write a business plan for you to start this yarn dyeing business that you want to start. And I don't think anyone took me seriously. I certainly didn't approach it seriously. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write the narrative of a business plan and skip all of the financial worksheets. Mm-hmm. I was in a basement apartment, and it was just me kind of experimenting and figuring things out. I'm completely self-taught. So why yarn dyeing in the first place? I figured I had a pretty good sense of color, mm-hmm. and that was pretty much it. I was like, I can do this. Why not yarn dyeing? Also, I wanted certain colors and they weren't there. So, you know, I am already a maker. So why wouldn't I just make the colors happen? Do you remember what your first color that you made was? Yes. The first color I made was a hand painted color that we no longer make. Uh, It had much more defined chunks of color. Mm. It was named after LeDroit Park, which is where I was living at the time. And it was purple and green with some like dark green browns in it. But it was mostly my attempt to combine purple and green because I was only just then beginning to appreciate green Mm. through its interplay with purple. At that point, were you using the technique that you've come to use in your shop? Generally speaking, yes. Mm. I was doing the same things. Um, I started it with the idea that I needed to make colors that were to a certain extent, repeatable, mm-hmm. because people want to be able to buy enough for a whole sweater. Yeah. But also, we've refined the process a lot and gotten a lot more consistent. Some things have had to change because it's not me dying anymore. For a while, it was not just me dying, mm-hmm. and now I don't really dye yarn at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have three different people who are dyeing yarn, so it needs to be consistent across all three employees. So we have like really intricate formulas all the way down to like adding a half teaspoon of liquid to a giant pot of water. Wow. But before we get to that though, how did you go from running this small thing that was trending toward a business to actually having this beautiful shop that we're in today? The main catalyst was that I realized that I couldn't afford to live in DC anymore. I had quit my job sort of spontaneously 
again without really running all the numbers because who wants to do numbers that's so boring <laughs> um but you know just based on i have a sense that this is going to work out and as it happens after that i broke up with my long-term girlfriend and realized that no it really is not going to work out i don't have any money my car got repossessed i ended up moving to columbus ohio where i had a friend because it is super cheap to live in Columbus, Ohio compared to Washington, D.C. And my friend told me I could dye yarn in the basement of her yarn shop. So, you know, thus began my series of yarn dungeons. <laughs> like serious old school basement uh-huh. yarn dyeing studios. You're working with a lot of chemicals, as I understand it. How, how was that in oh, a basement? Oh, God, it was... I wore a mask. I still, like, everyone still wears a mask when we're working. But... Yeah, no, I was not working in properly ventilated spaces. I was just sort of chancing it, just (laughs) supreme confidence. You know, it takes a certain amount of, I think, ego to open a business and think, yeah, what I'm making is specific and special enough that people should pay me money for it. Uh And also, you know, I was younger, so I was in my 20s. I figured I'll be fine. I don't have health insurance or anything, but everything's going to be fine. Was it? No, it was terrible, but it got better. I, you know, kind of started from scratch in a lot of ways. I busted my ass. I worked hard and I put out as much product as I could, which was not a lot because I couldn't afford to buy a lot of product. And I assume the raw yarn that comes in is already pretty expensive. Yeah, when you, I mean, it's priced per pound, and the the price break you get comes with the more you buy. So for someone like me, at that, at that time, the mill that we're working with now, I couldn't afford to work with them mm. because their minimum order is 600 pounds. Wow, of any given. Of any given thing that you order, you have to get 600 pounds of it. So we're talking and, 600 pounds of this particular cashmere merino blend right. or whatever. Right, and... 600 pounds of yarn is a full pallet. Like, picture a pallet and picture it stacked about as high as, you know, your height. That's a lot of yarn. Yes. I didn't have anywhere to put it. I definitely couldn't pay for it. So. How much does that cost? um, Depending on what it is. Anywhere, like around $13,000. Is about what we are paying for that amount of yarn, mm-hmm. including shipping, and there's other shenanigans to pay for. Taxes and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Import. So at that point, you, when you're in Columbus in a basement, uh, still, still kind of hard scrabble, it sounds like. Definitely. But, but at some point, you find your way to Baltimore. Well, my grandmother got sick. And this was at the point where things had kind of just started to shift for me in Columbus. I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was making enough money, and I was starting to kind of crawl my way out of this hole. Uh, But my grandmother got sick. She was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. It was a terminal diagnosis from the beginning. Yeah. So, again, I am not risk-averse, and I just jump into things. So I was like, I'll just move in and take care of her, obviously because then she can stay in her house, which is what she wants. Mm. 
So I packed up everything and moved to my grandmother's house in Baltimore County, put my die set up in her basement. Another dungeon. Another yarn dungeon. I pretty much had figured out that I can make any space work as long as there's plumbing. Because you need water. water, heat. I bring my own little stoves. Got your own little stoves. And that's it? That's it. Drying racks, I assume? I just set those up outside. Nice. There was a clothesline, so. So did you start to build a business clientele here in Baltimore? I did, a little bit. I was kind of doing the bare minimum of dying because it was only happening after she went to bed, which mm-hmm. was honestly like 8 o'clock because um, she was sick. So, you know, for those few months, my whole life was really focused on taking care of her. And then after she died, I was pretty miserable and... You know, also I was living in her house by myself, which was kind of creepy, and also wasn't helping my sort of mental health and social life because all of my neighbors were over 70, and I needed to get out of that house. So I was looking for places to live. I didn't actually think I could afford to stay in Baltimore. I was looking at going back to Columbus because I knew I could actually afford to live there. But I found this artist apartment building that I thought was a Craigslist scam, but I still called them and went there and it turned out to be a real thing, which was a whole new building of apartments that were designed for low-income artists or low to moderate income artists. And I jumped at the chance, barely passed the credit check, got in there and suddenly I had a studio apartment that was full of light and neighbors who were also artists closer to my own age and had a sink in the dining room. So the dining room became the dye kitchen and I set up and I got to work and that really was a big turning point for me. When did you open this shop? How did that come about? My apartment was my workspace for a while. Then I moved into a different studio space that was only a studio space. It was in a storefront, but we weren't open because it was 700 square feet. And suddenly I found myself with all of that piled to the ceiling with yarn. Mm -hmm. And it still wasn't properly ventilated. So it was hot as balls. (laughs) Like the UPS guy would come in in the summer from outside, like from hauling boxes around (laughs) in 95 degree heat in Baltimore and would walk into our studio and say, I got to get out of here. It's too hot. (laughs) Um, That UPS guy is actually my husband now. Um, But we just outgrew it. We needed something bigger. And we found this firehouse. It had been vacant for years. Uh, It had been a kind of halfway house, rehab, homeless shelter situation before that. Um, It was actually functional as a firehouse until, I want to say, the 90s, maybe? But it was, it was a mess. Like, it was, it was a mess. There were occasionally homeless people sleeping in the basement. It was just a mess. And... Cleaned it up? The landlord cleaned it up. The city was very anxious to uh, have it occupied because it's a really visible location for this neighborhood so the city sold the property to my landlord and he and I negotiated a lease and that included all of the build out for this space 
And then suddenly I had a storefront. Like suddenly I have a yarn store mm-hmm. instead of just a yarn dyeing company. But which it's also a functional studio just looking around. It is. It is a functional production space. And that was always intended to be the main focus of this space. Mm-hmm. And the retail side of things was incidental. It was what we did because people expect us to have a retail space in this building. Mm-hmm. Um, it was what we did because we needed some place to put the yarn anyway. So why not, you know, display it? So how many people work here now or work with you? Well, uh, so first of all, I am now actually a paid employee, which is awesome. And I have two other salaried employees, both of whom are here today. And then we have a couple of students who work here Mm -hmm. and one intern right now. Nice. After this brief break, Carita Collins gives us a tour of the neighborhood fiber company and describes the yarn dyeing process. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. So here's the thing. I know nothing about actually dyeing yarn, but I'm looking around this space that we're in, and there is just this astonishing array of variegated hues, sometimes even in a a single thread, a single fiber. There's all of these colors. What do you have to do to actually dye yarn? We kettle dye, which means that we dye our yarn in big pots, Mm -hmm. and we dye protein fibers. So wool, silk, alpaca, cashmere, things made of animals, mostly. As opposed to synthetic fibers? As opposed to synthetics or as opposed to cotton, um, plant fibers, cellulose fibers. The dye that we use is specifically made for silk and wool fibers. It's called acid dyeing. Uh, which sounds super scary, but the acid we use is citric acid. So basically a combination of dye, heat, acid is what makes the color stick to the yarn. Okay. 
where are the dyes coming from? What are you making them yourself? No, we order our dyes from a commercial dye manufacturer in New York City. Mm. Is there a reason that you focus on uh, protein fibers? Is that the term you used? Yes. Well, there are two reasons. One, acid dyeing is easier okay. than dyeing cotton. And it doesn't work on uh, like cellulose fibers and such as well? Is that the idea? Right. It doesn't work on the cellulose fibers. And also, I like wool. Mm-hmm. I like I like the way wool feels. Mm-hmm. I like... I like cashmere. I like silk. I like things that have the properties of wool. Wool mm. is amazing. Yeah. And it gets a bad rap. It's not scratchy all the time. So Some of it can be. Some of it's scratchy. It depends on the breeds. When you get really into nerdy knitting, you start to pay attention to sheep breeds and you know, talk about the you know, the micron count and the staple length of a merino sheep versus a blue-faced Lester versus a Targi versus a bunch of other different really specific sheep breeds. Let's get really nerdy though. Like, are okay. are you sourcing from particular countries? Where's the actual fiber that you dye coming from? Most of what we do is merino. All of our merino comes from a mill in Canada. Mm-hmm. They're milling the yarn. That's not where the fiber comes from. Merino are alpine sheep, I think, right? Merino are New Zealand sheep. Right. New Zealand, Australia. But I mean, but they live on, on mountains, right? Yes. They're, yeah, it, or in like hillsides, kind of. They need a lot of green, but mm-hmm. they're not like alpaca, which are serious mountain. Mm-hmm. And also not sheep, right? Also not sheep, correct. Yeah. Different. They are from the camelid family. Uh huh. Um, yeah, so merino sheep live in New Zealand and Australia, and that's where that's where most of our wool comes from. But it comes by way of Canada. So you're mostly working with this this Canadian mill, which is for the most part. What, what are what are the elements of the process that they do? What, what what does the raw material look like when it comes into your shop, into your hands? Into our hands, we get boxes of yarn that's on cones. Um, so imagine like, you know, like a, a big thing of butcher's twine wrapped around a cone. That's what we get. Um, thicker and softer usually, I'm assuming? Softer, thicker, sometimes thinner. Mm-hmm. Depends on what kind of fiber it is or what it's used for. We have 15 different kinds of yarn that mm-hmm. we dye. So it just depends. So can you just show us some of the areas of your workspace in the store here? Sure. So. So this is our yarn winding area. It allows us to take the yarn from cones, which are not saleable or dyeable, to skeins, which is how we package the yarn individually. So what we have here is a big red piece of machinery that has, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it. It's got it's like kind a of- A big red frame. Like, it looks like these are, can I move this thing? Is it like sort mm-hmm. of? It moves. Uh, it's like wheel. It's almost like a drying rack, but on a wheel. Yeah. And it, what it does is. Or a windmill almost. It does. It, it's kind of like in an X configuration with like two X's that are like three feet apart. And they've got a bar through the center of them. And the top of the X's have wooden pieces. And you 
wind the the raw yarn around that to yes you put the yarn around the wooden pieces and then you set the rotation counter so that each skein is the same length and then you hit the green button for go and the red button for stop but when we are actually winding yarn it automatically stops once you've wound them off what's the next step what do you what do you all do with them well you make sure that you have put dye ties on them because what's a dye tie a dye tie is a piece of cotton that is looped through the yarn in strategic places to keep it from becoming a horrible tangled mess Uh, like my headphones in my pocket yes imagine if you had some sort of way to keep those organized i would probably be very happy Mm-hmm. So what, what function does that serve besides preventing it from, from dying? How, does that help you then also dip it into the It is the 100%. Pads? It is 100% about keeping okay. the gains from getting tangled. And also making it easy for our customers to wind it off into a ball because you can't actually knit from the skein. Okay. Kristen has just brought over a cone, Thank an undyed skein bundle, and a fully dyed skein. So we get it on the cone, which is right here. This is a bundle. Uh, We dye multiple skeins at a time, Mm -hmm. and when they come off the winder, we bundle them into the correct increments. So this particular yarn, we dye five at a time. So this is a bundle of five. These are the dye ties that I mentioned. They look a lot like the yarn itself. Yes, but they're in cotton. this state, the yarn is, is in this state, the yarn white, is white. Kind of almost the, ivory colored. Yeah, the dye ties are also white. But once they go through the process of being dyed, we end up with a skein that looks like this. So, this so now is, we've got this vibrant blue. Yes, and with white ties. Because they don't hold the dye that you are dipping it into? Exactly. It makes it easier for us when we're rinsing and for the customers when they go to wind it into a ball. Uh, Should we look at the dyes and then maybe the stove? Sure, so after the yarn is wound, we've got it in bundles and we can soak it. So we have this whole triple sink set up and one of them, one of the sinks we use for soaking the yarn. It helps the fibers open up and also helps to remove any like chemical gunk that may be on there that would prevent the dye from adhering to the yarn Mm. and the sink is conveniently right next to all of the dyes uh here are our dye stock solutions they're in a big range of jugs it looks like yeah we've got size labeled with the colors a bunch of gallon jugs with a bunch of different color dyes in them and they're all labeled and astrid left them really neat so they're all facing with their labels out to minimize the likelihood that we will grab the wrong thing Mm. Um, which sometimes creates really cool new colors and other times just makes a mess. And then there are powders down below. There are dye powders down here and measuring cups up here. And we use the measuring cups to mix the dye stock solutions from the powder. It's one teaspoon of powder to one cup of water. So, you know, for a gallon, that's 16 scoops, 16 teaspoons, and a gallon of water. And then you pour those into these huge uh, pots that are on this enormous stove of yours? Yes, we have this giant stove with 10 burners. And I used to tell people that we spent a lot of time waiting for water to boil because 
the water has to get hot before you can put the yarn in the pot. Now that we have this super heavy-duty industrial stove, it happens a lot faster. Real heavy-duty. It puts out 550,000 BTUs of heat. It is literally the maximum amount of stove that we could have (laughs) in this space. Like legally? Yes. Well, in terms of how much gas is coming into the building, we're using all of it. These are 24-quart pots, stock pots. And we put the dye in there along with a bunch of water and citric acid, which is the acid that we use to make the dye stick to the fiber. It helps it penetrate the fiber? Mm-hmm. It's what makes it wash fast. It, it's what makes it stay. So uh, we keep the citric acid in like an Ikea bin and we scoop it out as we need it. Uh, we fill the pots with this pot filler that I had put in because I was it's trying like to pot minimize. Pot filler looks like a, like a hose. It is. It's like um, a really long hose with a spigot. It's designed to fill pots on a stove. The water actually comes out really slowly um, because it's designed for restaurants and they're not super interested in very quickly filling giant Do you have to filter things the water, water. Here? No. We just sort of go with it. Okay. So whatever weird you know variations we get because of baltimore city water that's part of the product it's neighborhood yarn neighborhood fiber exactly it is exactly what you get from this neighborhood and then Uh, after they come off the stove it looks like they the pots go sit uh over here yes they rest is what we call it um so we just grab the pot holders carefully move the really hot, really heavy onto pots onto these metal low tables. Yeah, these low um, equipment stands is what I think they were called when I bought them. Um, I just wanted something that was that didn't involve lifting it up to minimize the strain on my back. So reasonable, they look heavy. They are very heavy and they're very hot. So you have to be very careful when you handle them. Do they ever spill? I mean, yeah, but we try not to. <laughs> Fortunately, we have concrete floors. Yes, that was on purpose and by design. And we actually have a drain in the floor because we wanted, this is like our dream space. So a lot of it was, it was all custom designed for us. So mm. we have a drain in the floor and we have concrete floors and that is all by design. And then once uh, the yarns come out of these vats, these, these pots, they go on these drying racks over here? Well, first we take them back to the sink to dump out the water. Okay and to rinse and you want to rinse until all of the dye is gone Um, and then we use our spin dryer which is over here again still kind of close to the sink because you'd be going from the sink to the spin dryer which is sitting over another area that has a drain in the floor Mm -hmm. so that the water that it pulls out of the yarn can go straight into the drain Mm -hmm. And after that, then we take it and we take it over to the drying racks and hang it up to dry. How long does it stay there? Overnight. Unless we are really in a hurry. Can I touch it? Yeah, absolutely. I love the yarn. So, and you see we have fans on the floor. Depending on what kind of yarn is on the drying racks, we turn the fans on overnight to speed it along. Then what's the next step after that? After that, we take it off the drying racks in the morning and start the process of actually packaging it 
mm-hmm. um, which means that in that we twist each skein individually into its pretty packaging and wrap a tag around it. And if it's going to a yarn store, we put it in a box and ship out a big box with UPS. If it's going to an individual, we go over to our little shipping area, which we call shipping land. And it's where we keep all of our USPS stuff, all of our small boxes. It's also where we keep all of our labels. So, um, you know, if we are sending something out, we'll wrap it in tissue paper and package it, print out the label, and then schedule a pickup. And then all through the center of the store, you have fibers themselves. Yes. All of the center of the store is devoted to the retail side of things. It's full of grid wall, like big metal racks that all have yarn on all sides, as well as a bunch of knitted samples to give people ideas of what they can do. After this brief break, Collins tells us how she works to build a relationship with communities of Baltimore through her business. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Can you tell us a little bit about the creative process, if that's the right term for, for what you do behind developing a particular color? Sure. Uh, what, what goes into creating some of these beautiful varieties that I, I see around me? Well, so our, the reason our company is called Neighborhood Fiber Company is because all of the colors are named for neighborhoods. Originally, they were all D.C. neighborhoods. There are a few Columbus ones thrown in there. It's mostly Baltimore neighborhoods now. So sometimes the process is just about me thinking of, what does this neighborhood remind me of? Or why am I dying this? Is it because we need another yellow? Sometimes it's as simple as we need another yellow. Uh-huh. Uh, this is the yellow we're missing in our color lineup. And then I think about what color, (laughs) what that reminds me of. So Kristen has just brought me a super bright orange that is named Otterbein Mm -hmm. for the neighborhood where the Orioles Stadium is. So Nice. That is... Because their color is orange. Because their color is orange. And opening day was yesterday. Uh, So I noticed that it's not just a solid singular bright orange, though it is very bright. There are also um, slight differences of shade and, and texture in the color. Yes. Uh, is that something that is a deliberate part of the dyeing process? Are there tricks to getting those varieties Absolutely. into the fiber? Absolutely. We don't want our yarn to look like it was dyed by machine or and commercially spun. We want it to look hand-dyed. So Part of that is having some variations in the color, even within the colors that are solid, single layer colors, which this one is. Mm -hmm. We layer the dyes in the pots most of the time. So some of the colors are single layer colors and they tend to be more solid. And some of them are two layer colors, which tend to be more variegated. Mm -hmm. And it really just depends on what color it is. Some of the 
yarns that I see around me. Not not the majority, but but a few have appear to have even multiple colors in yes. them. They're sort of pebbled with with other colors. Uh, how do you do that? We so the first thing that we do when we create a layered color is add the dye to the pot, mm -hmm. then we add the yarn to the pot, and then we add the next layer of color over top of that. So if we work with colors that are very close to one another, it will create something that's much more subtle. But if we work with colors that are really different, like you know a dark red layered over a bright turquoise, you end up with something that has elements of both of those and tends to have a lot more variation in color. Can I ask what the profit margins on this are like? Our markup has increased as our cost of goods has decreased mm -hmm. because, because we're able to buy scale. more. Yeah. You know, it depends. Like if we go to a show in California and have $30,000 in sales, that more than covers the cost of, you know, flying out there, getting the hotel and the conference, like in the convention center and also paying the booth fee. Mm -hmm. But the profit margin on a show like that isn't huge because it's more about building that clientele over time. Right. And because, you know, we still had to fly to California. Right. So a show that's in, you know, Catonsville or something that has significantly lower sales is has a much better profit margin. Mm -hmm. um, our best show is the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival, mm -hmm. which is coming up in a few weeks. It's the first full weekend in May. Um but because we don't have any hotel costs associated with it, and because it is a sheep and wool festival instead of a convention in a convention center, it's a lot less expensive to vend. On days when you're not traveling, which I assume is most of the time, what percentage of your working hours are spent dealing with the public, dealing with people just walking into the store? For me personally, a very small percentage because I would prefer to not be doing the retail side of things. Mm -hmm. I worked 10 years of retail. Mm -hmm. I'm good. Like, <laughs> I don't need any more retail in my life. Uh, so I tend to hide in my little cubby office when, on the days that we're open, and I'm actually moving my office upstairs. What's it like living, working, running the shop here in Baltimore now? You've been in D.C., you've been in Columbus. Different advantages, different disadvantages, I assume, to both. What's Baltimore like? I love Baltimore. I call Baltimore the land of milk and honey and tell people that they should move here because you can buy a house here. Mm -hmm. And Baltimore is a city with something to prove. So to a certain extent, they're willing to put some money into things like artist housing mm -hmm. that's affordable, that's actually affordable. Also, Baltimore has neighborhoods. I'm really into neighborhoods. Baltimore has old neighborhoods that have people who have been living in their house for 50 years and it is changing there's lots of change happening there's lots of development but it just happens slower it's also though a city with a lot of economic disparities in it um so like running a shop where you're selling a commodity that's pretty expensive i mean it's basically luxury. a luxury good yeah this is a we're selling a luxury good. Our customers are not people who live in this neighborhood mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, Do you feel that as a disconnect? Somewhat. It's challenging because I want to, I want to be a part of this community and mm -hmm. not just the part of this community that is an expansion of the Mount Vernon neighborhood. Yeah. 
um, that, which is which is more affluent and you know in Baltimore affluent means white mm-hmm. so you know Mount Vernon is more of a white neighborhood the further west you go the blacker it gets and also the poorer it gets mm-hmm. for the most part our neighborhood is Seton Hill so we're sitting here kind of on the line between West Baltimore and Mount Vernon as someone who loves neighborhoods and loves Baltimore do you then try to find ways to interface with the city more generally? Well, I bought a house in Baltimore. I live on the east side, um, which is not where my family's from. My grandparents owned a grocery store in West Baltimore on North Avenue. Um, that's where my mother and her siblings grew up. Mm-hmm. So I feel the connection to this city in a way that is completely removed from yarn. Mm-hmm but is still a part of my business. So some of it is just, you know, I I did a project called the Crochet Coral Reef and I did it in Baltimore in the gallery in the artist apartment building that I was living in. And with that project, I went into a combination elementary and middle school and spent a whole bunch of time teaching kids how to crochet. and making hyperbolic crocheted sea creatures with a bunch of middle schoolers. It was actually a lot of fun. That sounds rad. And even though that was like three years ago, they're still teaching crochet at that school Uh in the arts classes. So I think that's awesome. I think that that is something that I left for that group of kids. We've done fundraisers for Baltimore causes. We try to be involved like we're part of the city uh in in some ways we're still figuring that out because just making money is hard yeah you know i've got employees it's not just me anymore so uh i have to make decisions that are just financial but Mm -hmm. I think that it's important to bring people, like my customers who are often from the suburbs, to bring them downtown, to Mm. bring them into the Mm -hmm. city and say, hey, there is a local restaurant that you should definitely walk to. And why don't you spend spend some money in Baltimore? That's kind of my goal with getting people to come down here and being open to the public. Yeah. We... I mentioned that we did a fundraiser. After the riots that happened in Baltimore, we were all kind of trying to figure out something to do. This is the Freddie Gray. After Freddie Gray, um, we, no one knew what to do. Um, We all felt like our city was broken Mm -hmm. and that it was out of our control to fix it. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the, the rioting was really about feeling powerless and feeling like, there are things that are wrong and I can't do anything about it. So uh, after that, we developed a color and we named it after Sandtown Winchester, which is the neighborhood that Freddie Gray was from. It's where the housing project is that he grew up in. And we donated 100% of the proceeds from that to the Baltimore Community Foundation's Fund to Rebuild Baltimore. It was overwhelming to see the number of people who responded positively to that. 
and we ended up donating over ten thousand dollars it's a really beautiful color thank you it's got purples and blues and it was a it was a very personal color yeah. for me um since then we've done other fundraiser colors we did one after the attacks in paris for doctors without borders mm-hmm. um but this was the first one. This one is still my baby. And this is, it's only just recently joined our regular lineup. Of all the yarns and colors that you have in the store right now, is one your current favorite? Yes. I am always drawn to the pinks. And right now my favorite is Mondamin, which is our hot, hot pink. It is also known as our pussy hat pink. Uh-huh. Because it is the color that everyone ordered for their pussy hats when you they saw were making them. That, uh, oh my God! There were days where all we did was dye pink yarn, and it was so we were so busy with pink yarn that even I was dying, and I don't dye anymore. I was really mad about it. Actually, <laughs> I was like, I forgot how hard this is. These pots are really heavy. This sucks. Um, but I, part of the reason I love it is because it was used for the pussy hats, and I liked the idea of sending a color that is named for the place where the real confrontation between the police and the group of high school kids that sort of... What was the name again? Mondamin. It's named after a mall. But, and here in Baltimore? Here in Baltimore. The mall is also uh, home to a major bus transfer mm-hmm. place. So when all of these kids got out of school and the buses suddenly stopped running right after uh, Freddie Gray, they came out of school and were confronted with a whole bunch of riot cops mm. uh, at Mondaman Mall at the bus stop. Mm. So that's when they started marching through West Baltimore. And I like sending that color to a group of women who are knitting hats for a women's march that is pretty white. Yeah. So... <laughs> like, hey, let me introduce you to, <laughs> to Black Lives Matter movement. So it's an almost accidentally intersectional yarn. Yes. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It was my pleasure. It, it was, was a lot of fun. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan, and I love a good pair of wool socks. But I learned from Karina Collins that cashmere socks are probably not as good for you as you would think. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is workingatslate.com, and we read and try to respond to all of those emails. You can also listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. While we've recorded this whole season uh, already, we welcome thoughts for future seasons and other people you think we should interview down the road uh, in uh, the months ahead. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. A special thanks to the people on Twitter who suggested that we talk with Karita Collins. Special thanks to at LoseTheMittens on Twitter who suggested that we speak with Karita Collins and learn a little about the Neighborhood Fiber Company. It was a terrific suggestion and we're really grateful for it. Our executive producer is Steve Lukti and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.